Did you know that David Brooks and Ann Snyder initially met through Mike Cromarty, the man who created Faith Angle? Well, they did. Ann worked alongside Mike at EPBC years ago, and he later introduced her to David and Ross Douthat before she worked as a research assistant at the New York Times. In today's episode, you'll hear from Ann and David together, a rare treat. Ann has just recently become editor-in-chief at Comment Magazine, a Canadian theological publication. And several months ago, she published her first book on character formation, The Fabric of Character, aimed at the philanthropic side of cultivating moral renewal. In the show notes, you can find a link to that book, as well as a piece she wrote two years ago about Mike Cromarty when she offered a lovely eulogy at his funeral, calling to mind Mike's lifelong magnanimity, his color, his mischief, and ultimately his steady and joyful faithfulness over the many years. And as you probably know, Anne's husband, David, also has a new book out, The Second Mountain. Like David's first four books, it's another New York Times bestseller. But unlike his first four, this new book is personal and transparent and vulnerable, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. David reveals his own pain in a way that few public personalities do. And he argues that we need a thicker commitment to work and vocation, to friendship and community, to a spouse and family, and for those who are open to hearing, to true faith. He adds definition to what all these things really look like. And now for the Brookses, two years into marriage, this means holding on to the enduring truth of the Judeo-Christian root and branch. David's book tells the story of Mike Cromarty introducing him to John Stott and the wrestlings he felt after meeting Stott for a candid lunch conversation here in D.C., It describes Anne's rooted calm, her patient conversing, her abiding Christian faith and radiant joy that today is dancing as a fellow deep soul with her husband. David flagged with his own story in mind that if there are 2.4 billion Christians and just 15 million Jews in the world, all too many of us overlook the deep Jewish roots of Jesus of Nazareth. It's easy to look back at him through a Pauline lens or with rigorous and now well-established theological categories in mind. But in his time, Jesus was Jewish at his core. He kept kosher, he wore the talit, he went to synagogue, he thought Jewishly. And if you'll permit one brief memory, David's insight in today's conversation and in the book also calls to mind something I heard one time while seated beside Mike Cromarty at a national prayer breakfast. Most of us, the speaker said, harbor what millennials call FOMO, or fear of missing out. We quietly harbor a willingness to run over to where things are happening. The latest tweet, the journalist scoop that will edge out the competition, whatever it is that means running speedily over to where, quote, it's happening. Our speaker said that Jesus in the Gospels is totally different. He doesn't jump at the speculation of the Pharisees. He doesn't jump at the latest political poll. He doesn't get bent out of shape by the last election. Instead of an I am where it happens mindset, for Jesus, it's always, it happens where I am. It's really important, the speaker said, that our mindset be like that. It happens where I am, not the latest fad, not fascination with the presidential motorcade. It happens where I am. While David and Anne are focused and remarkably talented journalist thinkers for whom careful thinking, zealous wrestling, and even prayers for a better world seem to be coming into view exactly where they are 
Enjoy the conversation. Well, hi, David. Hi, Anne. Thank you for coming by. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's fun to be here. And congrats on two plus years of marriage uh, at this Eight, point. Two plus. Uh-huh. Okay. And a book that's been out for two months or so for My book has been out two months, and Anne's book has been out... Three and a half. Three and a half. We ruined each other's weekends at the same time yes. by finishing books at the same time. But it's actually a good marriage tactic a because most marriages I've talked to, when one spouse is writing a book, the other spouse has zero patience for it. But when you're both doing it, you're both sort of... In misery. Wonderful. So does that mean it's followed by a year of Sabbath, <laughs> joy, and partying, or what's next? <laughs> I, of course, I always think of my next books when I'm on book tour with the last book because my mind is so sick and tired of the last book that it has to leap ahead and find something new. So in each of my book tours, I've come across something that I really want to write about. Okay. And okay. so I never don't have a book project that gives continuity to life. Wonderful. Okay. okay. Well, that keeps us waiting and wondering. And so Anne has a new job because she's comment editor, right? Yes. This is sort of a new, what's that about? So Comment Magazine is actually the first magazine that ever published anything I wrote for Eyes Beyond Myself. So I feel it's a really cool come full circle to honor the place that decided to make me a writer, whether I was ready or not. Yeah, Common is a great little magazine, comes out of Canada, but it really tries to span North America. It's actually trying to be more global, both in the stories it writes and the voices it welcomes, and its tagline is public theology for the common good. And we want to emphasize both of those phrases, public theology and common good. Okay. And I, I always add, it's sort of like where Reinhold Niebuhr would be writing today if he were Aww. alive. Aww. But I also like to add that I believe, based on no actual research, that Anne is the first female editor of a major religious or theological magazine. So she's the Jackie Robinson of Christian <laughs> journalism. Beautiful, right? <laughs> wow. wow. Nice. Okay. Well, great things expected. And I understand Jamie Smith was the most recent. That's right. And you cited him, of course, David, in your book. And I also just happened to watch today this. I had my life changed on. My life was changed oh. on a panel. It was about Aspen. Oh, was that with, with Anne Hathaway? I was doing panels oh, yeah. at Brookings and EPPC and places like that, which were not the most emotionally rich things on the face of the <laughs> earth. And then I was asked to be on a panel in New York at the place called the Public Theater, which is a great theater downtown on Lafayette Street. Uh, they originated Hamilton, a lot of things. And so I get to the panel, and there are a bunch of other panelists that's in the theater, and Anne Hathaway is one of the panelists. There's a clown who's a panelist, a couple other actors, and maybe one academic. And we're all backstage with the crew, and we all do a big group hug, so we'll have a great panel together, get out on stage, there's tissues in case we're going to cry, because that does what you do when you're in the theater. Anne sings a song. We have another big group hug. It was such a rich emotional experience. I thought, I've got to get more of this in my life. I'm trying to bring tearful, emotional group hugs to EPPC, Brookings, and AEI and Heritage. And so far walk. without success. Well, there are a few, few <laughs> allies in the mix. We're uh, certainly <laughs> open to that. And, and So the transparency and vulnerability piece is what I was thinking maybe we could pick up on right from the start, which is that's a sort of characteristic of this book that you've written. My father happens to be a marriage and family counselor, and he had this wonderful client one time who was seven years old, and he started his session by saying, Hi, I'm Timmy. I'm retarded. I'm seven. What's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, but basically, right out of the gates, right? <laughs> transparency and vulnerability is both beautiful and courageous, and potentially, I would imagine, arms your critics as well and has a potential downside. A couple months out, are there meta level reconsiderations you have with that respect to that? Yeah, I would double down. The book is in the first draft, it had no me in it. And one of my researchers, and I think Ann too, said, You got to put yourself in the book. So I 
put myself in the book. I told about a bad period in my life. I told about other failings as a friend and such. So I was just pretty vulnerable. And once you start being vulnerable, you can't just do it 20%. You do it a lot. And so it's meant as I go on tour, I'm talking about very deep and vulnerable stuff in my life. I was just with 30 members of Congress yesterday at 8 in the morning in the Longworth building. And I find myself doing the same thing, spilling my guts to them. And the first thing to be said is your critics take advantage. So your political opponents take advantage of the vulnerability to hurt you and be mean. And so that is just a real thing. Nonetheless, I'd say the response has been overwhelmingly positive. People like it when you go there. And it gives them a chance to go there. And even if you've gone there, once you've done that and said something honest about yourself and what's something wrong about yourself, then everything else, every other piece of the conversation goes better. And you really can't have relationship without having vulnerability. Even yesterday with 30 members of Congress, they were all Democrats. And I gave this little talk for 15 minutes, and then they all shared stuff in their own lives. And I've never sat in a house office building and had conversations like this, let alone with 30 people in the room. And so it really does open a doorway that people want to walk through and makes conversations about politics so much better because you're relating to each other at a much deeper level. One just addition to that, I would say sometimes I think I've worried as David's wife here that there's – He's putting himself on a sacrificial altar a little bit, just in the vulnerability. And there's there's vulnerability that can be used as a tool, mm-hmm. which I'm not a huge fan of, even if it's effective, to open mm-hmm. up a room, frankly, particularly a male room mm-hmm. <laughs> or a very successful room. But ideally, there's the space is created where it is a gift. And I think you are actually really motivated just to be of service. And maybe in some way serve as a little, you wouldn't say this about yourself, but maybe serve as a bit of an example, encourage others to melt a little bit. It's a risk because it's not like you're in an intimate relationship with your entire audience. Right. And I probably sometimes am guarding against, like, I know everyone wants you to be really vulnerable. Of course they would. Sometimes it can veer on the mass market today wanting what I call emotional porn. And I'm not really mm-hmm. in on that. It's a constant discernment, and sometimes you do get robbed, and you just have to consider your rights a loss. <laughs> I was thinking in reading the book that you've got to reach a certain level of, I don't know if it's security or comfortability or composure, but at some point, once you're not afraid anymore, once you're not climbing anymore, you're on a second mountain after all, you can go there. You don't want to go there in a way that's sort of distracting or getting certain or sort self-indulgent of self-indulgent. Sure, yeah. sure. There's very little of that, though, it seems to me. I mean, I think, you know, at least in the book, I, it was a delight to read. I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy, if you haven't already read it, The Second Mountain. You can listen to it on Audible. You can read it. You can hear David's talk at the Trinity Forum. You can hear a lot of things. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the Christianity-Judaism dynamic. This Mako talks about the border stalker this idea of being one of the most christian Jews or one of the most Jewy Christians along the way, do you think there is something true in each story that the other is missing? Anne's email on page 239 of the book about grace, cheap grace and stillness, what are we missing for those who are in the evangelical Catholic community on the one side or the Jewish community on the other? I describe quickly in the book how I grew up with two religious stories running in my head. I grew up in a Jewish home, so I had the Exodus story running in my head. I went to Christian camp, Christian preschool, Christian school, elementary school, and we sat in chapel every day, and I had Jesus story running in my head. And for most of my life, it didn't matter because I didn't believe in God. So it was just a question of two different stories. Once you come to faith, then the story seemed true. And I feel weirdly, as I've talked about it a little, and I've talked much more sparingly about this chapter in the book than anything else, but come to feel very protective of my Jewish roots and proud of them. 
and wanting to honor them. At the same time, as I write in the book, I can't unread Matthew. And to me, the Beatitudes is where radical beauty comes into life. And so I have crossed that Rubicon and Jews would probably be upset with me for crossing it. But they have been great. And most people have been very understanding and very understanding of the fact that faith is a journey. Mm -hmm. So I found nothing but receiving. I've been received very gracefully by almost all comers. The one thing I would say about each tradition is that for 2,000 years, Christians have de-Jewified Jesus. Mm. The art we're used to seeing of Jesus is this tall, thin Nordic guy. We were at church a few months ago now, and we had a black pastor giving a sermon on how many blacks were in the Bible, and he ran through a list. And it caused me to wonder how many whites are in the Bible. <laughs> and there's like very few, like maybe Pontius Pilate, I don't know, but there are very few white people in the Bible. <laughs> but that's now just how it's portrayed and what we're used to. And so Jesus was probably a short, swarthy guy who wore tzitzit, the strings, the garments that Orthodox Jews wear today. He kept kosher. He saw himself within a Jewish context. He was a Jewish reformer. And some of the differences have emerged have been because for 2,000 years, Jews and Christians defined themselves against each other. And even the Beatitudes have roots back in the Old Testament. The thing I would say, obviously, the resurrection is a radical break, but I would say the the differences we now tell about the two different faiths are mostly late additions. At the core of the moment, even before Paul, they were very much, you're in a Jewish context. Mm -hmm. You know, years ago, when I first worked at EPBC, Elliot Abrams chaired these Jewish evangelical lunches. Mm -hmm. And this is more conversation than podcast, but it was three Rebbe and three pastors mm -hmm. from a Reform Orthodox conservative and from a Reformed and a Bible church and an email. Mm -hmm. And it was great. We missed each other for a while, and then we grew, and then there was common ground. There's just much more and more and more in common than there is different. And I flagged, in particular, you're citing from Rilke, the poet, this idea that sort of, as you're saying, it's a journey. Truth comes to us as opposed to we somehow break through and find it ourselves or construct. Yeah. And then the knowledge comes to me that have space for a second timeless larger life now is the time to venture to leap. And I quote from Jaber Crow. He said he came to faith that character, and he says, "Knowledge crawled across my skin." Mm. The times it's felt bad to talk in public about faith is when people treat it as a decision: Are you going to be a Republican or a Democrat? Mm -hmm. And this is much less a decision you're in control over than God's in control. And and Anne's role in this was very honoring to God. Like we were writing emos and having conversations, and it was never Anne being in control of the process. It was her hanging back while I would ask questions and send an email and she'd write me back and letting God take control. Not mm -hmm. The most harmful moments were when some human tried to take control, mm -hmm. either by connecting me with this or win me over for the team, or as I often say, there was a lot of, there were moments that we both experienced invasive care. Or some, invasive curiosity. Yeah, yeah, where somebody would say, oh, you know, God put it in my heart to really invade your privacy right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I would say from where I sit and certainly where I sat in that time of those email exchanges, which were threading through this book you were writing and I was helping you with character and moral formation and how do people become humble over time, those kinds of questions. And I felt like you couldn't totally talk about them without some like spiritual or theological lens on them. Not that that was the only lens, but I just remember watching a human being awaken to God, period as a possible reality that had life and love to give. So it was actually less about Judaism versus Christianity at the time. I mean, you That's quote true. the grace theology that I somehow, you know, said in an email in the book, but really a lot of it was just 
there actually is a God, and I believe he desires to know you. And that's a huge explosion in and of itself. So I think that's a lot of people with all this curiosity about where do you fit within these. That was actually the most dramatic part of your journey, I think. And I say in the book, it didn't feel like a conversion. It felt like settling in deeper to two stories that were already in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had the typical neoconservative view, which was religion was really useful for other people to have, right. which was what Irving Crystal had. When I look back and I realize how, how far at least I've traveled, like I really had struggled with grace. I like this Anne's one of her appearances in the book is an email she sent me explaining what grace is. And I think I had just grown up in the American meritocracy where you earn what you get mm-hmm. and the idea of unearned something. It was just like I couldn't even get my head around it now. And that's, is slight, that is slightly more of a Jewish distinctive, too. It's right. American meritocratic, and there is sort mm-hmm. of the... Yeah. On workism, that piece in the Atlantic, I remember somebody flagging yeah, right. you know, in the bones, and that's yeah. the way life and, works. And it, Jews co-create okay. the world more than Christians do, and Jews can't think about heaven very clearly because... If the place is already perfect, what's left to do? We'll have to link to Anne's entire email excerpt in your book in the show notes because it's worth reading. And it holds up the, the distinction between cheap grace and grace and striving and work and stillness. Thinking about what you guys are doing together now a little bit with Weave and with enlisting more communities. With this idea that like a lot of men in particular are lonely, mm-hmm. are isolated, and they covered up really well. But in fact, despite their Instagram account, what is the thing that you think you've learned or learned together that you're sort of trying to tap into in that regard mm-hmm. about isolation, about loneliness, about describing the way that the culture is right yeah. now a little bit in this age of tribalism and fracture? What's the hook? We both write about disconnection, and we both I write about people who are managed to cross relational boundaries and are just geniuses at relationship. And Anne writes about organizations that are doing that. So we've, we're sort of in adjacent spheres. It's easy to say I'm for relationship. To actually do it <laughs> and to actually live it out is super hard. And so it takes weavers, people who are building community all around the country, and we try to hold them up. We try to learn from their example, and we try to lift them up and sort of build a social movement around them just because they found a better way to live. And our theory of social change is that social change happens when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them a little. And they live to be in relationship with each other. We have a mutual friend named Sarah Hemminger who created this organization called Thread in Baltimore, which surrounds underperforming kids with volunteers and mentors and thick relationships. We've gotten to know a guy named Pancho who lives in Houston who helps men who've broken their backs and have become paralyzed. He gets some wheelchairs, catheters, diapers, the things they need to live with dignity. And so these are people who are not living the lives that economists tell us we want, which is self-interest and higher status and more celebrity. They live and want to be in right relationship with each other and to serve some ultimate good. And so they are motivated by moral things. And they just have very different values than the values of the individualistic meritocracy. But then actually living that way requires constant skill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I quote this passage from Tim Keller and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, where uh, actually it should be about to hit us now that I think about it. They write that first two years of your marriage, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you think the uh, person you married is completely wonderful and perfect. But then after a while, you realize they're actually kind of selfish. And as you're making this realization about her, she's making it about you. Mm-hmm. And they say, you have a choice. You can either have a truce marriage where you won't talk about your selfishness. You'll just sort of pass it over. Or you can have a real marriage, a covenantal marriage, in which case you decide that actually 
your instinct is to think the other person's selfishness is the core problem, but actually it's your own selfishness is the only selfishness you can control. And the Kellers say, if both of you are working on your own selfishness, you're likely to have good marriage. So I think sometime over this weekend, I think we'll bake this realization <laughs> about each other. I was just thinking it's <laughs> the same Josh, story, yeah. same story. I've heard the line too that there are some times when you have a fight and the question is asked, do I want to be right or do I want to be married? Yeah, and yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I quoted a friend of ours, Emily Esfahani Smith, oh, yeah. who says when you're having a fight, there's a piece of you that wants to just say, oh, forget it, honey, let's be well. And then there's an ego piece saying, I'm really mad, just say it. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> bring it. You, gotta, you have to make the call which one to do. <laughs> yeah. Just one thing I would add to what David said about Weave, and I think what he's tried to do the last few years in his writing, frankly, with his platform, and now with this project, which is a different thing for him to not just be writing, but to try to somehow, whether it's build a movement, is just to name what's going on and sort of with the naming can come encouragement, equipping that generative spark where you're like naming this other logic that's not just economic self-interest, not just material. It's not just being an achievatron. It is like recognizing that our value is realized in relationship and in interdependency, which frankly, a lot of other cultures historically have realized better than we have in this, this country. And so that's like a powerful thing that I think David's doing. But but in the midst of that, and I would just mention a challenge, both in this, he brought together these 250, 300, quote unquote, weavers a few weeks ago. And in that large room. More of a um, Congress than a conference. More of a Congress, say, yes. yeah. The core of a lot of relational disrepair and loneliness is also just distrust. And mm-hmm. people far smarter than I have written about this. But I sense, particularly, frankly, amongst those, I sense this in middle age in a certain kind of way. And I sense it with those like 15 years younger than I who are fresh out of college. There's just this like existential alienation from the society in which they inhabit. And some of that is rooted in real-time events, whether it's student debt. It's somehow the failure of some kinds of institutions, but also we happen to be talking to someone last night who just visited all 50 states. She happens to be white. She and her husband and their family has had a real like racial reckoning in their own lives and sort of wrestling with history. And I think there's something in all of this weaving and reweaving that is we need to get down to the very deepest bones of where does distrust begin? Where does it begin in our smallest, most proximate relationships? And where does it begin at the most societal, historical level? So I think it's become a much, in some ways, much bigger and more complex project than you realize setting out just to sort of celebrate the relational vocabulary. My own work in its own modest way has tried to I've been so attracted to those institutions and or just more grassroots communities that are compelling people's trust. And actually, to go to the first question, like they tend to lead and they encourage a space that then gives people courage to be vulnerable. And when you lead with vulnerability and trust before it's necessarily earned, in the best case scenario, a lot of the time, it's contagious. And so anyways, I just said a bunch of things there, but there's like some million dollar question. I think we're both still trying to figure out what that question is. Yeah, like the Weave Conference was just this big hairy ball of mess. Yeah, America <laughs> in a room. Yeah, it was very intense. And parts of it I thought were utterly fantastic. People really showed up. There was a one of the weavers, he lost his father when he was nine. His father had an affair with a stripper and the stripper had him killed. And another of the weavers, when she came home, she's from Ohio, she came home one Sunday afternoon and she found that her husband had killed their kids and himself. So both these people had suffered amazing loss. Mm-hmm. Young man was an African-American man from D.C. who started a football camp, so other men will have, other young men will have father figures in their lives. And the woman named Sarah, she does a free pharmacy. She helps women who've suffered from violence. At one point in the conference, Darius just put his arm around her, and he's like 6'3", and she's like 5'2", and called it a benediction, really a, a coming together of these two people, and you have these beautiful moments. At the other hand, you had howls of racial pain. The, the room had a very progressive feel, so a lot of the Trump people felt 
they couldn't speak. And then at the end, we rushed so fast, we wanted to get so much done. Somebody howled in pain that your pace is not my pace. And a lot of things came up out of that. So there is something in the country that is extremely volatile that I think we're crawling toward. And it has to do with racial difference. It has to do with generational differences, vast these days, political difference. And it's all created howls of pain. We even had house guests who said something about Abraham Lincoln that I took big exception to. And uh, this person I really like, I found myself hating her. <laughs> and so um, even for, I'm, I'm over it now, sure, right, but right. there's just so much mess being yes. pulled up right yes. now. It'll yeah. be, either be the greatest thing that ever happened. It'll destroy us as a country. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, obviously you guys are in it and you're investing your own resources in it. And there are a lot of us who respect that incredibly. And to invite the big old mess and in some sense sort of the parallel here with the book, you're telling a little more of your story and being a little more honest, being a little bit more vulnerable and saying it actually wasn't all perfectly together despite a, a First Mountain successful life. Naming that, holding that up central maybe invites some some growth, and maybe it takes 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, or, or maybe it doesn't happen. I've heard you say in another context, maybe this is Ryan Olson, but that there are some columnists who think in terms of economics, and there are some columnists who think in terms of psychology and think in terms of public policy, think in terms of other, yeah. and yours is a little different. Could you explain your sort of lens and how that connects to the spiritual story I, you've told? I think there's something we share. There are a lot of people I know who are technological determinists. Mm. They think technology really shapes history. And it's funny, my paper is really pushing a lot of technology. We have a lot of technology columns, especially about the invasion of privacy. And I get the importance of technology. I mean, we've all seen the suicide rate. and But I'm much more a cultural determinist that shifts in values and attitudes. So I think culture is really what you have to think about. And it's harder to pin down than... And then there are some people who are economic determinists. And so when I talk about social isolation, a lot of people just say, well, we have economic inequality, and that's the problem. And I think it's bigger than that. But but obviously economics is a prime driver. And then the one problem that I fall into, which Anne doesn't, which is because I'm cultural determinist, I usually think that change happens within people's ears, inside the head. Above the neck. Above, yeah, well, also that. But Anne writes more about organizations and institutions. Oh, and, oh. and especially in the book, I don't talk about institutions quite enough. Whereas in Anne's book, The Fabric of Character, she talks about five or six or I don't know how many institutions that really do trains, they've created cultures within the organization that is very different than the culture of the outside world. Mm -hmm. And how you do that is very tricky. And then Yuval Levin, our friend, has a book coming out where he says institutions used to be formative. They formed who you are. And now they're performative. They're stages on which you perform your individual play. Mm -hmm. And look at the U.S. Senate. That's yes. a perfect example. But Anne has found institutions that are f still formative and people within them who are willing to be formed. Mm -hmm. When... Our friend Arthur Brooks talks about audience. He talks about true believers and hostiles and apathetics and mm -hmm. persuadables and says, you got to write to the persuadables because those are the people who are actually open and listen. You guys must have note cards all over the living room floor right now. <laughs> uh, how do you think I'm about... I'm always vacuuming. Uh, I wonder, yeah. <laughs> so he's losing his ideas left step. and right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> how do you think about audience when you are writing to such a tribal, fractured, divided culture? Yeah. Like in columns and in your work in pursuit of character. David will provide a much more sophisticated answer on this than I will, but two things. One, I do something very unorthodox and probably heretical journalistically, which is anytime I, particularly if it's a narrative piece, a feature, I am very rarely ever when I'm drafting it thinking about the intended audience. I'm always thinking about honoring the subject. That's just my MO, and that's just also the sort of writing I've done where I, not that to say there isn't conflict or that there aren't ugly warts, or, but somehow that just like helps me 
at the end of the day, like I want this to somehow be reflective of the authenticity of a person or an organization's life. And if I built relationship with them in the reporting process, it's really important to me that they feel like something true was captured. So that's just like a tool that's like some, somehow I'm wired. More broadly, I did think in my own work last number of years, I was asked to write for a niche audience, namely philanthropists and the people who were kind of investing in my work tended to be right of center politically. And I didn't expect a book about character to be that politicized, but in an age of a president whose character is debatable, to put it mildly, and also a partisan firing zeitgeist of heat, I found a lot of minefields just in vocabulary. So, for instance, I was really looking for thick, pluralistic communities that were still morally substantive, that were still imparting, like, notions of the good to children, to young adults, to people in midlife going through spiritual transitions, whatever. And I found even the word diversity was put in contention by, frankly, an editor I had who thought that's, like, the word of the left, and that has been—we can't use that anymore. So I've stumbled into that a lot. I would—they didn't like when I would say something was individualistic, and because I was trying to be a little bit more quote-unquote communitarian, and all these words have baggage. And I think it was very helpful to become aware of the baggage, even with a word like character, actually. I was trying to write something that would unite factions, so I was thinking a lot about audience in that way. Again, the way I felt like I could best unite was to tell was through narrative, less through argument, and to have sort of the narrative most fully represent the natural complexity and the way in which any human being or organization rarely fits clean categories. But it was a battle throughout, I would yeah, yeah. And, and as you were talking about your journalistic approach, that's exactly the opposite of the way I was trained, of course, which is to be completely detached from the person you're writing about yeah. so you can be have objectivity. Quote, unquote. Uh, yeah, quote, unquote. And Anne has relationships with the people she writes about much more than I do because I write and I move along because I never get that close. But I think mainstream journalism has a lot to learn from the way Anne approaches the work. As for my audience, I'm working on my stuff in public and I'm popular to the extent I am when I'm going through something a lot of people are going through it. And a lot of people who are a lot smarter than myself and better, they're just more idiosyncratic <laughs> and so they have fewer people. And the other thing is I've been doing this, I've been speaking and I wrote my first book in 2000, it's been 19 years. I've been giving probably 150 speeches a year, 80 speeches a year. So I'm traveling around the country being with people who are my audience. I feel I'm attached to them unconsciously and consciously that we just know each other well by now. We can have this conversation. And you always say you're a very average person who's representative of average yeah. tastes, average concerns with above average communication skills. Yeah. So, well, as you say in the book, obviously out and about in a different way as opposed to the Acela Corridor this last right. couple of years. And I think there are a lot of people who are grateful who are listening right now to you for that. Your last couple of paragraphs I have out in Pete's article in The Atlantic, we'll link to that in the show notes too, about sort of the vulnerability transparency piece and story to tell. You're choosing to tell your own story. Comments a little bit about this idea that you're on a journey with a friend. And I can't remember if it's that or someplace else, but there's a feeling that I got in closing the book where it's almost like you're coming through the JFK Museum at the very end, or you're coming through a Holocaust Museum at the very end, and there's that flash of light, mm -hmm. that sort of eternal flame that's sort of called out and invited mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And you have that relational manifesto inviting people into something. Yes, the audience and who they are, where they are, but there's still something about uh, a call that you seem to have, whether it gets yeah. picked up or not. But uh, could you comment a little bit on that final closing invitation? Yeah, well, I... I Reread the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, which is actually fantastic as a piece of writing. It's just very. We're in a moment with such hatred, division, isolation, suicide, all the rest, that you you don't want to just write a book and then move on. You want to 
try to affect some social change. I do think writing is about affecting social change. The book ends with this manifesto, which is an attempt to argue back against the individualism of the culture and argue for a better way of being, which I've tried to exemplify throughout the book. I hope I've been focused by the events of the past few years to be a little more urgent in that call. And I'm reminded when George Orwell, he wrote this great essay everyone should read called Why I Write. And he said, I write for a number of reasons. One, I want people to think I'm clever. Two, I enjoy playing around with sentences. Three, I want to understand the world. And four, I want to have some political impact. And so those were all woven through his writing. But then he went to Spain in the 1930s and fought in the losing side of the Spanish Civil War. In fact, the side that was guaranteed to lose. It was the fascists versus the communists. He fought with the anarchists, and they were bound to lose. But he came back purified, mm. and he said every thing I write now is against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. And his whole life was organized around that point. And so one hopes one goes through that kind of moment and becomes more focused about those things. I thought it was about individualism and community. As Anne said, and she's just provoked me about half an hour ago, it's a much messier ball we're grabbing, mm -hmm. having to do with difference in race and a lot of and and, history. And history, yeah. 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 And so hopefully the urgency will propel us deeper into that dark and optimistic place. Uh, beware <laughs> that provocation in the car on the way home. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Where's that vacuum cleaner? <laughs> I don't like that thought. <laughs> Thanks a million for coming by. Thanks Thank for everything you. you're doing for Faith Angle and all your writing. Keep it up. Thanks, okay. Josh. Thank you. If you like what you heard, there are follow-up links in the show notes, and we'd be grateful if you'd tell a friend about the podcast. Thanks for listening.